You are listening to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, episode 51. Today our special guest is Dan Bensky, and we're discussing palpation in Chinese medicine. Hey everybody, I'm Fiona Gitchum, and today we're talking with Dan Bensky. Hi Dan, welcome to the podcast. Hi Fiona, thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, You know, most of us have studied and read a book with your name on it. So it's very exciting to have you here chatting with us. Dan has been actively involved in the practice, teaching and translation of East Asian medicine and osteopathic medicine for over 40 years. Dan has a long-term interest in Chinese and Chinese medicine, having obtained a diploma in Chinese medicine from the Macau Institute of Chinese Medicine in 1975, a master's in classical Chinese from the University of Washington in 96, and a doctorate in the discussion of cold damage from the China Academy of Chinese Medical Sciences in 2006. He also graduated with a doctorate of osteopathy from Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine in 1982, where he was a research assistant for John Upledger. Dan has studied with many notable osteopathic practitioners, including Robert Fulford and Jean-Pierre Barral. In addition to teaching for both professions, he has been working on utilizing the connections between osteopathy and East Asian medicine for over 30 years. He is currently a medical editor at Islam Press and has a private practice in Seattle. He has helped to translate a number of important Chinese medicine texts, including Materia Medica, Formulas and Strategies, and Acupuncture, a comprehensive text, also known as the Shanghai Text. You can find out about Dan Bensky's clinic at www.danbensky.com. Books that he's translated and has helped to edit can be found at www.eastlandpress.com and courses can be found at www.engagingvitality.com. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources can be found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi Podcast to your favorite RSS feed, iTunes, or Stitcher. And you can also follow us on Facebook, make comments on our shows, and engage in the discussion. All links are in the show notes, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show today. Today we have a very special guest, Dan Bensky. It's great to have you on the show with us today, Dan. Well, thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure. You know, we did speak with one of your palpation technique associates uh, last year, maybe even the year before now, Chip Chase. Um, So I'm really looking forward to having another conversation about these techniques and hearing as well from you what it is that you've been discovering through developing the palpation techniques and also what they bring to clinic for you and beyond. So, yeah, maybe we'll start with your background. So you have a background in osteopathy. That's right. So I started studying uh, Chinese medicine in Taiwan and Macau in the early 70s. And after I got done uh, there, I went to Japan for four or five months. And then I actually came back and finished my uh, college, my undergraduate. And then I went to osteopathic school in the late 70s. And so uh, I I actually got interested in osteopathy because one of my future teachers, a gentleman named Fred Mitchell Jr. had done an article actually in a journal called the American Journal of Chinese Medicine, which I believe is defunct, where uh, he and some associates had done a osteopathic structural exam on three patients and then had them treated by uh, acupuncturists from China and then redid the exam and discovered that most of the structural findings related to the chief complaint had actually gotten much, much better uh, after the acupuncture. So I, I didn't know anything about the terms they were using. I remember they had the sphenoid, they mentioned the sphenoid and I didn't know what part of the body the sphenoid was in, but I was very impressed by their attitude, which was very matter of fact. 
and then uh, through a bunch of different uh, coincidences and stuff, I got more interested in. And then when I went to school, I did a lot of extra work in palpation and actually had a chance to uh, be a research assistant for a year for John Upledger. And actually we helped get his first book uh, out. And so when I got into post osteopathic medical school practice, uh, being a person who kind of lumps things together, I started uh, you know, trying to see how these two different aspects of my background could work together. In fact, I think not only they work very well together <clears throat> clinically, but they actually kind of reveal uh, different aspects about each other. So there are certain kinds of palpatory phenomena that I believe Chinese is a much better language for discussing than English. And there's lots of things about uh, East Asian medicine that uh, osteopathic palpation uh, makes very clear. So I think that's basically it. Wow, yeah. So that was my, my next question was going to be, you know, what kind of experience did you have that made you want to bring acupuncture into the mix? But it sounds like, did you say that you came across that inspiration to study acupuncture as well before you'd even graduated from osteopathy? Oh, no, I, I started studying Chinese medicine when I was uh, 19 and living oh. in Asia. Yeah, so I, I graduated. I graduated from the school in Macau in 75. And then I started the osteopathic school at Michigan State in 79. So I did uh, Chinese medicine first and right. then studied osteopathy okay. later. Okay. I can imagine that. do everything backwards. That, no, but I think that would have been a really great order in which to do it, you know, because you've already got this framework and context and understanding around the concepts of chi, and then you go and learn osteopathy where they're kind of they're talking about chi but just in a different way and a different way of yeah. being able to access, you know, the palpatory experience. Exactly. Yeah, so it's like, you know, there's only one body, and so if different people talk about it in different ways, there should be some overlap if they're real. Yeah. And I think you can use one to explore aspects that are underdeveloped or diff sometimes something is uh, difficult to understand and from one perspective and crystal clear from a different perspective. And when we do Chinese medicine, there's lots of different styles of Chinese medicine. So we find that same phenomena just in, mm -hmm. you know, looking at it from a Shanghan perspective versus a Zhangfu perspective. So were you sitting there in osteopathy school uh, learning about these palpable sensations and signs that you can feel with palpation and thinking to yourself that there's a better way to explain this with what you learned in Chinese medicine? That some of those exactly, terminologies yeah. were were um, more applicable descriptors. Yeah, I think for me, maybe just my uh, rather whatever kind of personality. When I was in Oxford School, for the most part, I just shut up and tried to learn what they were teaching me. And once I thought I had some basic competency, which took a while, of course, then I started to think about how the things could fit together. Yeah, so I had lots of opportunities to do different kinds of stuff, working in hospitals. I was able to do uh, herb, Chinese herb consults in mainstream hospitals sometimes. And uh, But I think this uh, idea of uh, how they come together would kind of coalesce uh, in part based on the same phenomena that I mentioned earlier from my, from Dr. Mitchell's stuff that you can treat in one system and you can see a change in the other system, right? You can check someone's whatever, the motility of their liver and you can tell what their pulse is gonna be like, or you can have someone with a certain kind of, you know, visceral osteopathic uh, liver dysfunction and you can treat it effectively with acupuncture. You can have cranial base lesions that respond to uh, extraordinary vessel treatments exceptionally well. Uh, and then you have certain kinds of chi deficiency that do very well when you get a, some kind of osteopathic technique. So 
all these things work together, they all interact, they have to interact with each other, right? I mean, how couldn't they? And so that was um, what I've been working with last, whatever, 30, <laughs> 35 very odd years. So I imagine, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine there's a lot of insights that you have discovered over the last 30 years that have kind of, that maybe you take for granted now that maybe a lot of other practitioners would have no idea about. Have you, because I know that you've been involved in teaching a lot of these palpation techniques um, alongside Chip Chase. We interviewed him um, last year, but are you starting to, like, is, is there going to be any documentation that you do around this? I.e., is there going to be another book or are you kind of more focused oh. on, you know, the, the physical transmission of the, of the knowledge and skills that you've developed? I think we, I think it'd be helpful to do both. So you know, we don't have any uh, firm deadline, but we are very interested in, we are working on a book. Uh, and Chip and I are, have all these different ideas on how to make it worthwhile. And both from teaching and, and thinking about writing, we realize that there is a lot of, excuse me, conceptual issues besides just palpatory issues. Because it's very common when we've taught people in the past, they learn how to feel whatever we're trying to teach them. And then they ask, well, how would I use this when you know, when someone teaches them how to take a pulse, they don't ask necessarily, how would I use that? And so we realize that uh, we have certain, and maybe driven by the palpation, we have different concepts about how things work. And um, that that has to be part of the, the training. So in our classes and of course in the book that we, we do that, uh, we'll try to work on those. Let me, let me give you an example, uh, which is maybe a little forced, but, but not. Uh, I think a lot of things done in East Asian medicine, people do by convention without really thinking about why they are that way or, or what that could mean. So, for example, uh, we, like many, many, many other groups of people who do palpation, have a way of finding points that are open or effective or able to be, have a big impact on the body. And those are very commonly not in the place where a textbook would place them. And if you think about that, one of the other technologies we developed is a way of listening to the channels. And with that technology, we found that the channels also move around, not a lot, but they move around a little bit. And people are always like aghast and often very surprised at this. But then if you, because they've been taught everything by some convention, an example we always give is if you went to get your blood drawn and phlebotomist was looking for a popliteal vein and they took out like a stretchy ruler and said, oh, the vein, this vein where access point should be like one unit between the popliteal fossa <laughs> and the wrist, you, you, know, you would like run out of the room. So unless you think the channels are like more fixed and less variable than the blood vessels, of course you need to find, you need to have some way of finding them. It's so great know, to hear you say that. I, I remember being admonished by one of my supervisors in a clinic when I was studying because I would always use my fingers to sense for the point and I find spleen six, you know, it's a fairly large kind of point in the scheme of things and it can shift around a little bit, especially when women are going through menopause. And anyway, she didn't like having that conversation with me, but it's great to hear you talking about it. <laughs> I'd like to hear about the, you said there's technology you're using to measure some yeah, of this. Te technology is my word for a manual skill. It's, it's not a, uh -huh. it's not a, it's not a machine, it's a, it's a skill that you can learn, you know, pretty, mm -hmm. without too much difficulty. So, so I think that kind of thing, so when you think about it, it does, you know, and they've done things like they had, I don't know, 11 
meetings and the WHO about where locations of certain points were, uh, where the different national groups all argued based on various texts. But you would never have uh, you know, 11 meetings like that about where a blood vessel was or where, a, uh, you know, where a nerve was because it'd be silly. Of course, it's this variation. You have to find where they are. And I think part of it is some people think that these are another aspect of conventionality is this abstraction that the functions, the zong fu or the channels are somehow abstract concepts and not connected directly to the physical body. Uh, once you start doing palpation, that becomes obviously untrue. And like I mentioned before, Chinese liver and the piece of liver <laughs> Uh, in the right, the mostly right upper quadrant, and it's the same thing. They're two aspects of the same thing, and they didn't call. They called the the gun. They called the liver the liver for a reason. They didn't put those bunch of uh, associated uh, functions and arbitrarily use some abstract concept of a of an organ. So I think. The last way that they were these abstract constructs is the way I was taught, but I'm quite convinced that's just actually it's just silly. And how would so how would someone do that? Why would they do that? And so uh, through using the osteopathic palpatory techniques, we can see very clearly you have you know lung problems. Your lung is affected. Uh, there are certain issues with some of the other um, tissues, like the, the triple burner, the Sanjiao. It's very definitely has a physical substrate that you can feel, and you can feel that it has a problem. Uh, so all of these things, and again, these ideas are not something that we came up with. Like one of the most fun things about this kind of work is well do this palpation and we think we discovered something really cool. And then we'll like read some, you know, early Ming dynasty book and the guy is talking about the same thing. So um, the idea that the ancient Chinese didn't think about the body as a physical thing is just also, it's just silly. When you think about it, it's just silly. And there's lots of political and uh, cultural reasons in the last hundred years or so why, uh, people who are running or the most influential people in East Asian medicine have shied away from making that connection. And we can talk about that if you want, but whatever is true, it's not, it's not the tradition. You know, there's more about the length of the intestines in the Neijing than there is about the channel divergences. So if they didn't think it was important, whoever, you know, collated the uh, Neijing, they wouldn't have done that. Does that make sense? I mean, that's just the basic idea. And uh, this idea that when you feel things in the way that we, that the Chip and I and Marguerite are basically osteopathic style, there's other people do other styles when you feel things, then you, you get this really direct connection to the body. And you can see that when they talk about the Zhangfu and the Jingguo or whatever, that they were talking about, you know, the body. They weren't talking about abstract concepts that they could, you know, just make up whatever they wanted them to be. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of ideas in Chinese medicine, you know, people kind of are drawn to Chinese medicine because they have an interest in energetic medicine or, you know, this idea that we're talking about qi and yin and yang as being these abstract concepts that are, you know, a bit kind of out there that sometimes can be, seen as being a bit fluffy, but yeah, as you, as you say, we are actually talking about people's physical body as well. Um, it's not just, it's not just, you know, the Chinese medicine concept of liver has nothing to do with the liver. It, it, it does. It's, it's very closely related to the liver and the same with the kidneys and, you know, and a lot of the time people are coming to us in clinic and they've got measurable investigatable issues and problems with their with their organs and with their tissues and with their muscles and their ligaments and that 
you know, they're not working properly and our medicine can fix it so easily. Of course, we're talking about physical stuff as well. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think the other aspect of this uh, that palpation gives us is with the feedback, either immediate or maybe not so immediate, it can show us when we're just wrong. And if you have everything abstract, you can think you did everything right, but the patient <laughs> didn't get better. Yeah. And uh, if you do, you know, palpation, you can say, well, I, I did what I thought was right, but the body will tell me, you know, very clearly that no, that's not what it's about. And so it's a kind of a check on, uh, on you. And that's another reason actually when, when we teach palpation, we like to teach a bunch of different kinds of palpation. So you can use one to check the other because it's always easy to find what you want to find. And that's not very useful to your patients. You know, that's such an interesting point, and I think it's really important as well because there's a lot of airplay that's given, well, I mean, it's happening around the world in all different contexts, not just Chinese medicine, but there's a lot of airplay that's given to, you know, all ideas are equally valid and all approaches are equally valid and you can treat anyone with any type of framework that you like, but you know, there's very little that's spoken about, particularly in education, but also once you're out in practice of how we, how are we actually assessing whether we've given the patient the best treatment that we, that we could have given them, whether our treatment has worked. If they did get worse, you know, there's a lot, you know, there's some discussion on, you know, various forums and so forth, and it's a bit of a kind of, <laughs> you know, some people refer to it as a bit of a cuddle fest or, a, you know, you say, oh, you know, the patient would have got worse anyway or, you know, some people even take it to the to the point where they say, well, we can't treat certain things because, you know, we're not necessarily given the tools and the ability to reflect on how well are, are our treatments working? If we gave someone acupuncture, how how can we actually measure that we've gonna that we've done a good job? And you know, for some people, they're kind of checking the pulse and checking the tongue. Or if you know, if you're treating someone who's in pain, you can at least assess has their pain gone away during the during the the treatment. But you know, sometimes there's not those measures that you can pick up on. And you know, from what you're saying, it sounds like this is a great. Um, a great thing that you and you and Chip are doing where you're, you know, you're talking about the ability for people to monitor the effectiveness of their treatment and make corrections if need be. Yeah, I mean, I, actually, to me, that's one of the main reasons. And pain is a great example because in my own hands, so this is not a rule. This is just, I think, in a certain level, unfortunately, what happens is that if I treat people in um, – many kinds of pain until their pain is gone, I have overtreated them and they will get off the table and feel great. And in two or three days later, their pain will return. But if I can treat their pain based on these different things that we're feeling, and when those changes happen, they may get off the table and they don't feel any better or significantly better, but in two or three days, their pain is gone and doesn't come back. So it would be would be best if you could do both, right? You yeah. can get rid of the pain and, and keep it away. And I'm sure there are people who can do that. But for me, it was really important to learn that, no, well, I have to check these markers. And when the markers are good, I need to stop. And if I don't stop, other markers show up that, oh, I'm treating someone and in some cases I'm going to give them a unnecessary treatment reaction and in other cases I'm going to push their body to feel good temporarily but not actually engage their self-healing mechanisms in the best way possible. So that was a hard lesson for me to learn because it's hard in the beginning to like you don't feel any better I'm done <laughs> and uh uh, but then I, I'm very clear enough, again, not as a rule for everyone, but for me, that if I get these things that I'm feeling good, 
uh, the long-term, not, not long, but you know, medium to long-term uh, effect on the patient is the, is the best. Mm. So this is start to pay when you start to feel with that. We have this kind of saying, one of our little uh, quotes that we like honor everybody, but we don't believe anybody. And so we have to try to check out and research in the different ways that we can anything that anyone says. And one of the things that uh, I know Chip and I, Margaret, we like to use is these different things from the we can palpate because they're very clear and uh, they're very helpful. Let me just give a couple of examples, maybe to make it not so abstract. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah that was, I wanted to ask if you can yeah. maybe even pick an organ system. I'm particularly interested yeah. in how you palpate well, around the Sanjiao that you said was palpable. Well, I mean, just like, yeah, so uh, let's just take one of the things we like to do as a screen and this is a, a technique called manual thermal evaluation developed by Jean-Pierre Burrell, who's a French osteopath uh, that I've been working with for 30 years off and on. He's a, one of my main teachers, uh, where you can feel uh, one, there's different layers, but there's one layer of heat or probably more like radiation that comes off the body and that when the body is functioning pretty well, it's about 10 centimeters high. So if you feel where the edge of this layer of heat is, the edge is about 10 centimeters from the skin. And you can check over the upper burner, the middle burner and the lower burner. So over the chest, over the kind of just above the navel and in the pelvis anteriorly. And you can get a sense of what those burners are like. And it's very common. Again, one of the things we find with this technique, like many other ones, is the core issue uh, in people being unhealthy is not excess or deficiency, but in fact is whether things are open and connected or not open and connected. And I think that's one level more basic than excess or deficiency. So the word in Chinese for that is tong, like, you know, putong is a tong, so like, you know, there's no tong, you get pain. And it's a sense of being open, connected, uh, unified, all those things. And so the, for example, someone's middle burner may be low. Instead of being 10 centimeters, it may be three centimeters. And you'll find out as you do the rest of your exam that they have, they could have uh, stomach heat, they could have spleen deficiency, they could have all sorts of different kinds of things. And when you treat those, the uh, thermal layer will go back up to 10. And if you keep treating it past the point where you're uh, just engaging the body's healing mechanism, but you keep treating them more, then the thermal layer will plummet back down to Three, three or four centimeters, and that's just a clear sign that you have over you have overtaxed the system. So that's one example. Um, that is great stuff. Yeah, so it's, and it's actually really easy to learn. Actually, <laughs> it's not difficult. But so you can see right away. Oh, and and again, uh, you know, in my practice, uh, every day it's like, oh, that's not right, or I think I want to do this, but I don't get the response that I'm looking for. That means my diagnosis is, well, let's give another example with thermal. You can also learn to feel as a kind of a screen for the points that are, I don't know what the exact word, we don't really call them open, but the points that when you needle them, you'll get the biggest effect on the body. And so if you're gonna do a back treatment on someone, we would do this thermal diagnosis first, instead of just relying on our intellectual um, diagnosis. And it's very, very common that the points that show up are not exactly the points that you thought of. And the fact that those points show up versus the original points you thought of, that helps your diagnosis get clearer. You may have, a, instead of you want to do spleen and kidney, and in fact, you end up with diaphragm and triple burner. 
to say, oh, that's more of a Shaoyang level. It's not really a Taiyin Shaoyin thing. And oftentimes when those things happen, you can go back and look at the pulse and think about the symptoms and realize, oh, I was jumping to conclusions because I like to treat, I like to use Li Zhongwan. I don't like to use, you know, whatever, uh, Sinisan or whatever it is. And so um, <laughs> then the, the body will tell you, no, that's not right. And so the, the, the diagnosis and the treatment becomes a kind of a dance where you have to be open and flexible and have a kind of creative reactivity, not a creative activity, but a reactivity. And then you, then you keep learning stuff about, you know, wow, what does, what does the diaphragm mean in Chinese medicine? Your patients will show you different aspects of what it means or what is the Sanjiao? And I have a, we have a big thing about the Sanjiao um, uh, for lots of different reasons, which I can go into in a second if you want, but it's that kind of idea. So that's just one palpation technique that helps you keep on track. And is the, does the manual thermal diagnosis, so if you've got, you know, one of those low spots, say, for example, in, using the example of over the stomach, where if you can correct that person's chi, then, that, then the manual thermal will return to be more even. Are you going to find that um, points, for example, on the stomach channel or points that are known to have an effect on the stomach, are they going to also come up on on your manual thermal screening? Like if you... Maybe. Maybe, it but depends maybe on what the, Yeah, so for example, lots of people with this issue, uh, they have low middle burner problems with the... Their issue from a, a East Asian medical perspective may be liver spleen uh, disharmony. Maybe the, the most co common hackneyed is uh, you know, Xiaoyao San. Yeah. And then if you treat those people with acupuncture and you check listening to the channels, you you'll end up with spleen and liver points and stomach points won't do anything. They won't show up. Um, in fact, one of the things that the, I think I learned from Burrell as a idea, which I think is useful is that you do the right thing in the wrong place you end up irritating the system so you can do the right technique on on stomach 36 but if that's not the point that is useful for the person you will have a, a either no effect or a negative effect on the body i've done that a lot <laughs> myself <laughs> So um, I think, and also there's lots of different things. So one example, again, uh, since we talked about the Sanjiao to, to us is pretty clearly physical substrate is the pleura and peritoneum. It's not the, and so if you think about, you know, Sanjiao literally means like three burnt things, right? Jiao means burnt or charred. And if you saw someone who had been sliced open, these uh, are the tissues that dry out right away. So I think if you were looking at someone who had been like a prisoner had been executed and their belly had been torn open or their chest had been torn open, you would see these things and they would look like they were charred. Um, actually, I, when I do dissection, it's also like that, even with embalming fluid. And so when they talk about uh, in the Nanjing and other places, like the Sanjiao has a name, but no Xing. Lots of people take Xing as form, but it really doesn't have Xing like a bag doesn't have Xing. When a bag doesn't have a form, it takes the form of whatever you put in it, right? And so, and again, this is one of those things, this isn't, my idea, you can read things in the Song Dynasty and the Ming Dynasty, people talking about the Sanjiao in exactly these terms, that it's this bag that takes the shape of the guts and all the rest of the Zhangfu. So sometimes, uh, for example, people who have some kind of problem in the stomach and maybe they have 
example would be they have a symptom of reflux, right? Uh, you guys use the word GERD, whatever, some kind of, you know, esophageal reflux. Uh, some of the people, the issue is the membranes around the hiatus. And when you do the different kinds of diagnosis in, in traditional East Asian medicine on these patients, on, you won't find stomach problems, but you'll find Sanjiao problems. And if you treat the Sanjiao, then they will get better quite quickly. And other people with very similar symptoms, but pulse is a little bit different, palpatory findings are different, they, they have stomach problems. And if you don't treat the stomach, you can't help them. So that's just an example of how, on a certain level, just taking the body seriously and taking uh, what we've learned about uh, East Asian anatomy seriously has a big impact on, on treating your patients. I'm reading through your notes that you've sent ahead and where um, I'm very excited to, to see that you've mentioned the, um, you know, being able to palpate and get a sense of what's happening in the uterus. Um, specifically of interest to me because I'm pregnant at the moment. Um, but I'm just wondering, like, what is your experience in terms of being able to assess, assess someone using these techniques when they are pregnant and the bigger the baby gets and how does that change what you're feeling? So, um, again, like everything I would talk about, this is all just my, my opinion slash experience. Yeah. That... Um, I believe my understanding, one way of looking at pregnancy uh, from a traditional perspective, from the focus on the mother, is the fetus is like a ball of phlegm, right? It has this kind of, it's this wet, and it affects the mother like a ball of phlegm in the womb. So it's not about fetal health, but about maternal health. And one thing that we'll notice in people with a back pain is you have to find out what parts of the uterus are, again, sometimes it's the uterus, but probably in this case, it's more the attachments of the uterus is tight and work them there. So one of the really useful things with doing palpation for uh, symptoms of uh, related to pregnancy or actually any kind of symptom is very commonly the problem, the symptom is not where the problem is. And you can have back pain that you requires you to treat the front and vice versa. You know, we all, we all know in Chinese medicine, you have headache, you treat the feet. Well, with palpation, you can have a really clear idea. Yes, in this person, I want to treat their headache or this woman who's having bad morning sickness I actually need to work on her lower burner. It's not primarily upper burner. The lower burner stagnation is then causing everything. While this other woman with a morning sickness, this is very clearly a lack of harmony, a proper motion in the stomach. And that's where we need to work on that. And so near the end stage of pregnancy, you have the same thing. Where exactly is the tension? How is that affecting the uh, placement of the baby inside? and uh, the symptoms uh, of the mother. Is that vaguely <laughs> clear? Oh, no, I think it's great. You know, it really allows so much more nuance and detail in your ability to diagnose and also to prescribe a really spot-on, honed-in, refined treatment as well. You're not just kind of going with protocol or just kind of like trying to work it out based on a certain, you know, one or two symptoms and a, and a pulse reading, you know, which is. Yeah. So yeah, the, the more evidence you can put together, the more confident you're going to be that you're right. And also the, again, the more times you'll say, Oh, I originally looked at the person and I thought X and, but when I got into the details, I found out, no, that X isn't, isn't right. Or it's X is too superficial an understanding. Let me give another kind of tangential that came to mind because you mentioned herbs. One of the really uh, interesting uh, conundrums in herbal medicine that I, that I think is a very well known is there are patients where yin deficiency and chronic damp heat 
are difficult to tell apart. In fact, even the tongue, there are people who have a yin deficiency, but they have a actually very thick, yellow, greasy tongue coating. And uh, if you treat them correctly, over with that, that will slough off and you'll see the underlying stripped tongue, but that's not something that's always there. And this was pointed out to me in the 80s when I worked with some really excellent uh, herbalists in, in China. And the pulse is a little bit sometimes hard to tell, and the symptoms, if they have like, you know, nighttime fevers, it's a little hard to tell. And, you know, I think if you're like a Steve Clavey with your amazing ability to do um, interviews, you, you can tell, There's, there are ways to tell. But when you do palpation and you pay attention to the sense, you can palpate the general sense of the fluids in the body, the difference between these turbid, stuck, damp fluids of damp heat and these kind of dried out, insufficient fluids of indeficiency are super clear. So it makes this kind of differential, which maybe in some cases either requires a really high level of skill or I work with very skilled practitioners who just like pick one and see what happens. If it's that right, do the other one. Uh, where here you can feel it directly and there's, there's no guesswork involved. So I think there's a, an example of palpation being, you know, extremely helpful in herbal medicine. And I don't know about, I would think in Melbourne, uh, this kind of patient is not rare, you know, where they have this kind of complex background and whether the core issue is lurking dampede or yin depletion is not really obvious from the history or the symptoms, but it's or even from the pulse, but it's super obvious uh, from palpation. You know, this brings up kind of a lot of sensations for me just for you to describe that. I wanted to hear some more about how you do palpate for the junior and the fluids. So, I mean, is it as obvious in that sense as, you know, the person with the damp heat feeling more like a jelly than the person with the yin deficiency? Could you, is there any way that you could perhaps develop the description of what that's going to feel like? Yeah. So, I mean, one way of, and there, this level of palpation is very clear that different people interpret or, or verbalize the sensations in different ways. So that's one of the challenges when teaching that people can feel the same thing, but they don't want to talk about it the same way because as it percolates through their own nervous system and their own background, the words aren't the same. So, and particularly with fluid, but one way of thinking about it is we know that the body is, you know, well over 90% water. And there's a way of, of having your hands on someone where you can just feel the whole body as like a single drop of water. And that that water has a kind of a fluctuating motion in it. And that's partly, you know, what we think about it in uh, biomedical terms, that's probably the interstitial flow and venous and lymphatic return, et cetera. Uh, there, and also maybe, and that's also, I think, part of the Sanjiao uh, in, you know, Sanjiao controls the fluid, it's the same thing. So when you feel this kind of drop of water, you can feel like, oh, as it moves, is to feel like it's a turbid pond scum you know, with uh, detrius floating in it, or is it uh, really like it's uh, like the, um, you know, the last bits of some river that's drying up in the summer, and so there's not really a lot of flow, and the tissues that should feel moist in this in this drop of water are actually kind of dry. Uh, when people have toxicity, like uh, from maybe uh, intense flus or uh, we also see it in people have chemotherapy. There's a sort of a kind of a dark vibration in it that's very palpable. Again, if you would talk to different people, should you talk to Chip or other people, they would describe these sensations in different terms. That's one of the difficulties of palpating fluids, yeah. but it's but it's a very clear for each individual. It's really clear. 
and if you get to see someone who's healthy and have this sense of this kind of clear, like a, um, would it be like a restful little pond, that's what everything feels like, then you get a sense of that's what supposed to, people are supposed to feel like. Inflammation can gunk up the works because it's just another form of toxicity. So it's that kind of feeling. Excuse me, the fluid's a little bit difficult. So when we teach, we have a kind of a three-part basic course and we don't get to the fluids to the last course <laughs> because if you don't have a basis in the other kinds of palpation, it's a little mm. more tricky to feel the fluids, at least the I way that we understand it. I can appreciate the nuances in the linguistics of it. You know, I've, I've been doing Reiki since before acupuncture and I do a lot of feeling with my hands. And it's almost like the sensory capacity of my body and its uniqueness actually translates what I'm palpating into words through the fingers. And they're not even always the same kind of words I would choose if I was articulating something from an intellectual experience. Right. And I think the part of what we're saying is that you should take that feeling and plug it back into your understanding of East Asian medicine. Yeah. And you'll well, find definitely. that there all these different connections right and some of them are matter of fact and some of them are really surprising right like wow look at that so i'm sure you've had that experience definitely palpation is always been such a wonderful kind of thread through my clinical experiences because as soon as i put my hands on things a whole bunch of other information comes through and definitely it can be is something I can use to clarify the other clues I have. You know, I wanted to make so, a, a comment, um, Dan, just on that. That um, you know, I've I've done some of the training with uh, with Chip when, when he's um, been out in Australia, and you know, learning these, you know, what the different tides are, and you know, what does the chi feel like versus what does the, the fluid feel like. You know, it was really. Um, it was such a great experience to be able to learn how to do that, you know, and it felt like, wow, this is like, this is so cool. All acupuncturists should know how to do this because, you know, it just informs your practice so much. And, you know, I was a little bit sad that, and I don't know why, but, and it's happened again in this pregnancy, but um, when I, when I fell pregnant, I lost my ability to feel, you know, to feel the fluid tide and to feel that, the cranial rhythm because I don't know, just these having another person in your body just kind of just, you know, threw my antenna off, so to speak. But um, it really does become quite obvious if you're feeling someone who's got a lack of fluid versus someone who's really phlegmy, you know, that, that distinction you were saying that can sometimes be quite tricky with that chronic yin deficiency or, you know, damp heat presentation. You know, I think this is a really great, a really great skill and a really great framework for for practitioners of herbal medicine as well, not just acupuncture. So, Claire, I want to make a point that probably shouldn't go in the podcast. Okay. If that's okay, uh, when you have this kind of problem, where you lose palpatory skills uh, in pregnancy, it's probably because uh, your sacrum isn't moving optimally related to the pregnancy. Ah, oh, you know, that's so, so, if, it's so spot on. <laughs> that is so, so spot if on. You, so you should get someone to work on your sacrum. Yeah. I have, a, um, I have a colleague who has spent 15 years practicing alongside osteopaths and um, she has a lot of kind of overlap of knowledge with them and, um, yeah, she's she's found a lot of stuff going on with, with my sacrum, and um, the thing that seems to work really well is rice grain moxa on Sanjar Four. Uh huh. So, so there you go. She she has worked out that the Sanjar Four maps to the sacrum for a lot of people. So that's right. And 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 again, Sanjar Four is often talk, talking about as a kind of point that deals with the primal chi. Yeah, and that this is one of those connections. Oh, why? Why does that point deal with the primal chi? Because it deals with the sacrum, and that's where some of the primal chi is uh, 
kind of circulation starts in human beings. Yeah. Oh, that was a great comment. Are we able to keep that in? Oh, I'm happy for it to be in. <laughs> so, you. No, no, no. Okay. So one of the things that I find really, well, I mean, this is, this is probably going to annoy some people who are listening, but, you know, we're into that. Um, you know, there's two really, really big schools of thought in the world of acupuncture. And, it, you know, when we're talking about Durchi, and you've got one school of thought where Durchi is you've got to twist the needle and move the needle and do all kinds of things with the needle until the patient feels some kind of um, sensation or pain response or there's like a muscle twitch. And then the other school of thought is that you're, you know, the practitioner stays with the needle until the chi arrives and that the practitioner is the one who is observing and measuring that sensation of the chi arriving. And obviously, you know, what you're describing with these um, with these technologies of being aware of what's happening in a person's body, you know, that, that dirty sensation is not necessarily going to have anything to do with what the, what the patient is feeling in that moment. Do you have exactly? Do you have strong well, opinions on dirty? I, I do. I have, a, I have a very strong opinion, and my strong opinion is they both can work. Uh, so you have to do, but probably not a good idea to on the same patient to mix these paradigms. So if you are a person that you do achieve that kind of uh, needle sensation is what is the core thing for you. That that works. That can work really, really well. You it has certain aspects. It's uh, uncomfortable, and maybe you need to use a few more needles. But it's certainly very, very useful. And, and actually, one of my main teachers uh, after I finished school, I was in Taiwan for about half a year, and I worked with this woman named uh, Ling Ling Shen, Regina Ling, who was a fantastic uh, acupuncturist, and. Uh, Actually, she was born around 1920, and from the age of three, she was apprenticed to her grandmother, who was a Chinese doctor. And by the time she was eight, she could see patients. Uh, and as an aside, uh, the medicine that she practiced, including the acupuncture, which is what she mostly did, though she did some herbs, was pretty much the same as the medicine that we learned at the Macau Institute, which is, you know, post 49 medicine. So she's a very clear example of people who say that, you know, the communists destroyed Chinese medicine. That's not, that can't be completely true because I had this teacher who studied medicine almost before there was even a communist party in China. And her the way she practiced was the same way I was taught in a TCM school. But the other thing about her that really struck me is she was definitely one of those people where she wanted the patient to kind of jump with every needle. And the thing that impressed me about her, besides she's quite effective, is that she didn't do any palpation, but she would needle a point two, three, even four times until she got that sensation that she wanted. So if she put a needle in stomach 36 and didn't get much of this needle sensation, she would take it out and try again. And so she really impressed on me that whatever you're doing, whatever your markers are, you need to get them. You need to get that result if you're going to be helpful. So um, I don't think that uh, kind of needle sensation is that useful for me. Uh, and I think it's, more interesting and sometimes you get more, I, you know, obviously I have my, my bias that you can get a bigger effect with less needles if you focus on feeling what the body is doing, uh, which is that kind of the chi or, or some people call it the chi jir, the chi arriving, which is again the sensation that the practitioner feels more often than sometimes patients feel it also. But I'm also very clear that people who do the other way, uh, they can get really good results. I mean, and this gets back to one of my um, really clear 
core beliefs, and particularly about East Asian medicine, that if people do things in a lot of different ways, then that means all those ways are at least sometimes useful. It can't be that that way is totally useless if a lot of people have done it for a long time. And so I think this idea of the needle sensation, it's something that I would only do when I felt there was really strong stagnation, maybe in some kind of different kinds of joint issues. It's, it's not a thing I do even on a daily basis, but I don't, I think it can be, you know, in the, some people's hands, it's very effective. So that's my strong opinion. It's great. <laughs> we like strong opinions. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, you know, I agree with you. I think there's a time and a place and sometimes Sometimes you really need to, like I find myself drawn, um, particularly with musculoskeletal complaints in mainly in men or in athletes, people who have got quite strong constitutions and, you know, you need to get, well, I feel like the way that I treat that, you know, getting a really strong sensation, a really strong needle sensation is most is mostly going to be more effective than what I'm going to do otherwise yeah. for them. But I guess it also depends on the type of patients that you have coming into your, into your practice. If, yeah. if you're treating a lot of, you know, people who've got fibromyalgia or Lyme disease or, you know, chronic illness, and if they're very depleted, then it's not necessarily going to be useful to disperse their energy all the time. Yeah, I think, again, this is a place where palpation can come in, all sorts of different kinds of palpation, but it's a marker. You can say, oh, when I do this kind of very subtle needling, I don't get any change. And if I do this kind of more, you know, aggressive uh, needle sensation-based needling, I get positive changes or vice versa. So it's uh, trying to figure out, part of it is who you are, I think, and part of it is who the patient is. So you need to be flexible and, and not get, you know, I, I don't like it when people say, oh, I do this. I'm a person who just does this one kind of thing because uh, patients, you know, sometimes they need something else. And so if you don't know how to do that other thing. So for, for again, uh, maybe tangential, but when I talk to people who are in acupuncture school and they ask me for advice, I say, well, is there something that they teach in school that really is of no interest to you? And they'll say, oh yeah, it's like herbs or Chinese acupuncture or Japanese acupuncture or whatever. I say, okay, that when you're in school, you need to spend all your extra time studying that thing so that you will be basically competent in it when you get done. And so you'll be able to use it when the patients need it. The stuff that you really like, don't worry about you'll study that a lot afterwards but the stuff you don't like you need to study it extra hard while you're in school because you'll both never study it again and you'll have patients who really that's the uh, best treatment for them that is great advice <laughs> you know it fits with that mm. idea of you know the magic happens when you're outside your comfort zone yeah um, you know, there's good things that happen when we make ourselves uncomfortable in life. <laughs> it's not really about us. It's not about what we like to do. What yeah. we should like to do is help people. Exactly. <laughs> right? <laughs> Otherwise, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. If we just do what we like, then they should pay us. Yeah, it's, um, there's a, you know, that's a, it's a really interesting point and, you know, going off on even more of a tangent, but you know, we are in a service profession and we're in a health profession and sometimes, you know, our ego can really get in the way of being able to help our patients and that can happen on, you know, it can happen to anyone really, like any practitioner is vulnerable to that. But, um, you know, particularly if you've made really clear decisions about I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to do that or, you know, if I put the needle in, I'm not going to take it out and put it back in again if I don't think it's right. You know, like our ego can really stop us right. from being able to get the best outcomes for our patient. Yeah, and also stops us from getting better over time. Yeah. Yeah, the day we stop yeah. learning is uh, a sad day, I think. 
Dan, you know, I'm really interested in, um, well, we tend to ask a lot of our guests what they would contribute towards the evolution of Chinese medicine education. And I'm just wondering what kind of future developments do you think could evolve with teaching palpation further within Chinese medicine? Yeah, I think, and again, uh, I think making palpation a core aspect of people's training is really, mm. I think, a necessity. It doesn't have to be the style that, that I do, but there's lots of different styles. Just because it does get out of this though conventionality, abstract issue, uh, though when you get out of school, your teachers, your only teachers really are your patient and be able to learn from them. And if you don't have any palpatory skills, then that's really hard. All you end up doing is like, you know, maybe gathering a set of a bag of different tricks, but you don't actually have a way of putting it together. You know, maybe in Asia, they can read all these ancient texts or you know, hundreds and hundreds of case histories. They can think about different kinds of things. Uh, I still think palpation would be good for them, but I think certainly if uh, you're a Westerner, and you want to get better, you need to pay attention to your patients in as many ways as possible. And palpation has to be one of those ways. I agree. I mean, I think palpation gives such a direct filter to put your diagnostic thinking through, as you've described. And that you know, when most people are either new graduates in practice or they've been in practice for a long time even, one of the biggest areas that people are always looking for developing is just their ability to nail that correct diagnosis sooner, you know? Like if we can get the diagnosis perfect within three seconds of when they walk in the door, that would be awesome, but often we have to work towards it. Um, right. And the sooner we get there, though, um, the benefits are everywhere. I mean, you know, for the patient, but also for us in our practice as well. Yeah, I mean, one side benefit, I guess, for practitioners is when you pay attention to your patients, again, not only with palpation, but palpation is a good way to do it. Your work is always interesting. I've had people who've been in practice just a few years doing East Asian medicine complain to me how boring it is. And when they tell me it's boring, I tell them they should probably do something else <laughs> because if you're paying attention to people who walk in your door, they're not boring and their bodies aren't boring. And there's all this stuff to kind of learn from them and interact with them. And so I think palpation is a, again, a side benefit for the practitioner is it makes the work very, very interesting. Uh, every day, every patient is a kind of, somewhat of a mystery. There's always new things to learn about them. Again, also talking to people and other kinds of making a connection with people is always a good thing for human beings. But I think again, like you were talking about this direct connection to the person is always fascinating. Yeah, well, I mean, it's been so great to hear you discussing what you've been doing with palpation. You know, I think it's really great work that you're working on there. And maybe, are there any upcoming courses or anything we can mention that you have on the calendar, either for the end of this year or 2018, that our listeners can um, yeah, look into? Um, the, uh, the style of kind of palpation and concepts that Chip and Marguerite and I have worked on is called Engaging Vitality. And there's a website called Engaging Vitality that has the courses, I think, that all over the world, mostly now just in the US and in Europe. Uh, and there's also an Engaging Vality uh, Europe that more focuses on the European courses. So I think there's courses coming up in Amsterdam and Berlin and maybe next spring in Seattle. Uh, so if people are interested in taking the courses, um, that would be the place to go. The courses are a little different because it's a hands-on course. We really can only take a certain number of, of students in each class. Otherwise, you can't give them the feedback that's necessary to learn the material. 
So they're usually somewhere between 15 and 30 people. I think we have a 30 person maximum in our classes, depending on how many table trainers we can get. So I think that's the only place I know they want to get more information. There's also little things we've written about it. And maybe I think Chips, there's a link to Chips uh, interview with you from a couple of years ago on the website also. Oh, great. Well, you'll be able to put yours up as well, if you like. So sure, yeah. for our listeners, that was engagingvitality.com. We'll put up all the links in the show notes. Thank you so much again for your time with us and sharing your generous information. If anybody would like to make any comments on this episode, you can comment on our Facebook page. You're not on Facebook much, are you, Dan? So you're not... Not too much. Not too much. Not too much. So he may not be there to respond to you, but... Uh, Yeah, it's just such a great topic and I'm really grateful that you had the time to come and chat with us today. Well, thanks for inviting me. I really uh, enjoyed it. Thanks for coming on the the show, Dan. It was great to finally meet you, virtually at least anyway, and to hear all of your great insights and knowledge. (laughs) It's a privilege to have someone like you in our profession, so we look forward to much more coming from you. Yeah, we'll always try to be of some use. That's my goal. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks to all our listeners and bye for now. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks again. Mm